just felt this like thing, this little tiny kernel of a thing in me that really felt free, like for the first time in my life. You are listening to Badass, a podcast where we hold authentic conversations about the most difficult experiences life can hold for us. We explore the transformative power of these events and what they teach us about ourselves and the world. I am your host, Maribai Rose. Welcome to Badass. Hello, listeners. So, we have a real treat for you today. We have invited April Hennessy back to continue sharing her story of how she healed and moved forward in her life after her experience at Camp Tracy. If you haven't listened to episode nine, please go back and listen to that before you listen to this one because it's going to make a whole lot more sense. We're so happy to have April back in the studio today. And we're really just going to dive in. We're going to pick right up where we left off. So when we were last talking with April, she was describing how at age 18, she had a moment where she was in the parking lot of the Bible school that she had gone to, and she just decided she was done. And she packed up her stuff and she left She told the headmaster that she was wearing pants because she was done. (laughs) And from that point, she went out into the world without any support. And so I'm so curious about what that period of time in your life was like, just being completely on your own in the world and having just come out of this extraordinarily traumatic experience. Um, What was that like for you? Yeah, so thanks for having me back so that I can tell this half of the story. It was a strange time, you know, in some ways really liberating to just pack up my stuff and leave. But logistically, you know, that was also really difficult. I had a job, I had a car, Um, But that's all I had. You know, I had stuff that was sort of crammed and packed into my car and I didn't know where I was going to go. And luckily I did have a really good friend who let me couch surf for a while. So I would kind of stay at her house for a few days, you know, sometimes find somewhere else to go, sometimes park somewhere and sleep in my car. Um, So I was effectively homeless or unhoused. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but um, I still had those few people who were uh, supportive and who were loving and caring um, and many others who had basically written me off at that point um, once I left that that world. Mm-hmm. Um, and were you still in Jacksonville, Florida at this time? I was briefly. So I was in Jacksonville for a few months and then the friend who I'd been couch surfing with uh, decided to enroll in college in Tallahassee and sort of needed a roommate. So I was like, sure, you know, like, what do I have here? So I went with her and we got an apartment together and I just sort of worked while she was in school. Um, And we lived in Tallahassee for a while. I do have to say, like going back a little bit, 
when I was at the Bible college, um, I met my partner through that experience because her sister was my sweet mate. And so um, we kind of connected and we weren't, I mean, she was living in Ohio at that time and I was in Florida. And so things didn't really, we were just sort of like communicating long distance, mm-hmm. you know, and email, back in those phone days, call. Yeah, I was yeah. wondering. Yeah. So emails, <laughs> phone calls. Oh, exactly. Kids. Oh God. It seriously. was a whole other world. For real. And the phone bills because you didn't have like unlimited data, right? Mm-hmm. So we sometimes laugh about the phone bills and what they looked like because that's the only real method of communication aside from email that we had. Um, texting wasn't even really a huge thing at that point. You had to like call people on the phone mm-hmm. and talk. So we did that for a while, um, long distance. And she wasn't out at that point. Mm. I wasn't really out at that point. So, you know, it was kind of like a, a, just sort of a strange time, like trying to find my way, trying to just be safe and housed somewhere, exploring this like new relationship that felt still sort of scary and dangerous because it was something that neither of our families like would have accepted. You know? Yeah, I, that's actually what I was feeling really curious about because I mean, not only did your family not accept your sexuality, but Mm -hmm. you were given such intense, explicit messages and messages like, you know, homosexuality is Mm -hmm. the result of having a demon inside of you and, you know, you will go to hell. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious about, you know, you navigating. I mean, I think it's hard to navigate a relationship at 19 years old anyway, right? Like it's scary and yeah. confusing, but you're navigating your that's this new relationship with all of that going on in the background. Yeah. And it, you know, it was scary for both of us, especially because she still lived at home at that point and her family was sort of equally religious and not accepting of, of her sexuality in any way. Um, her friend actually ended up outing her to her parents. And so, you know, there was this kind of ultimatum, like you can stay at home and live here, but not live that quote lifestyle, or you can leave. And at that point we were, we had gone back and forth and visited a few times or met halfway. And we, I just think neither one of us was willing to really live like that. You know, like she wasn't willing to do that. So, um, I actually moved to Ohio at that point from Tennessee, or not Tennessee, oh gosh, we moved to Tennessee later, um, from Tallahassee. And um, we just like moved in together. And it was, I mean, again, okay, first of all, there's like the the stereotypical lesbians U-hauling, which, I mean, that kind of happened. But <laughs> aside from that, I think neither of us really had anything or anyone at that point. Mm-hmm. And so part of that was just we'd found someone that we could kind of rely on um, and someone to walk that path with for a little while. And so that's kind of how we end up together. Yeah. You were kind of refugees from this evangelical world that was not accepting of you. Exactly. Yeah. What was that like to be, you know, 
in a relationship with somebody who it had been long distance, you really hadn't spent very much time together. And then you were suddenly living together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really interesting. And we were babies. I mean, at that point I was 19. She was like 22. She's a little older. Um, but neither of us had been in a relationship that was open like that um, ever. And so here we are, like we'd never spent extended periods of time together at all. And suddenly we were just like living together in this tiny little one room sort of studio apartment. Um, But, you know, in some ways it was actually really lovely. Like we, we had to find a way to not only just like live, make money, like do all of those sort of like adult things together. But having that common experience, I think was really, it was big for us because like we both understood where the other person was coming from. It's not like someone was out and living this like very um, sort of out life while the other person was still sort of like halfway closeted, not really knowing, like we both came from that really evangelical upbringing. So we understood like the challenges of being out in that world and um, uh, like had to find our way out of that, like the shame of that, the, the pressures of that, the guilt of that, because both of our, you know, both sets of parents at that point were like, how could you do this to me? How could you, you know, like mm. it wasn't about, it was about like something we were doing to them, mm-hmm. right? And so we had that common experience. And I think that was um, helpful to have someone else in that at the same time who understood. Yeah. How much contact did you have with your family during that time? Not much. I mean, I really didn't see my family for several years after I left. Um, I remember calling my mom from Tallahassee to say, to like officially come out to her, like no way would I have done that in person because I still for years and years and years carried this fear that they would somehow just lock me back up, right? Whether it was like, Camp Tracy or some other kind of conversion camp. I mean, Exodus was like a huge thing at that point, like sending people to this conversion, like workshop or camp or whatever it was for like grownups, right? To be converted or like. Yeah. Um, it doesn't really even seem like an irrational fear, honestly. You no, know? it's like probably as, not. <laughs> as I'm thinking about it. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I called my mom to say, that I was gay. And I just remember her response was so funny in some ways. Like, you know, she was like, what do you mean gay? And I was like, well, I like women. And she was like, you mean like you have sex with women? And I was like, I mean, yeah. And just like, yeah. But it was just such a weird conversation, you know, like that she, and I think so often people in, that evangelical world get hung up on like sex. Yeah. And it's like really about so much more than that. Right? Yes. Like as all relationships are. Um, so anyway, yeah, that was kind of the conversation. And then that was it. Um, after that, I moved to Ohio. Did you have any, you know, communication with your dad about this or was it just something you didn't talk about? Mm-mm. Nope. I just, told my mom on the phone. I assumed she would relay that information. I didn't have any conversation with him really at all um, for years. Mm-hmm. So they immediately cut, like, 
cut me off of everything. So they dropped me from their car insurance, dropped me from their health insurance. They just dropped me from like all of these things. So, you know, I'd been paying all of that stuff. Like I would send them payments every month or whatever. Um, But then suddenly I was like without, you know, all of these things that I had to like scramble to figure out, okay, as a 19 year old, like, what do I do? How do I get this? You know? So. And I do think, you know, when we're well into adulthood, we kind of forget how complicated and scary that is when you don't know mm-hmm. how to do any of that stuff. Yeah. And most kids have a parent who's like walking them through it. Well, you do this and you call these guys and this is what you do. And you didn't have that at all. Nope. No, I didn't have anyone to ask. Um, you know, my partner and I figured it out ourselves. Like we just had to, we had to figure out how do you get an apartment? Like what does that look like? How do you put money down on something? How do you, we didn't even have a bed. I remember that the only bed that we had when we first moved into this apartment was like the twin bed from her like childhood room. And we literally just slept in this twin bed together. Wow. Until we could afford to buy a bed that yeah. we could both fit in. Like a mattress on the floor type yeah, situation. Exactly. Yeah. We had nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So you two had to get really scrappy. Yeah, we did. Yeah. We did. <laughs> Yeah. How long did this relationship end up lasting? We were together for 15 years. Wow. Yeah. A long time. And to be fair, like it probably lasted longer than it should have in some ways. I mean, but we were very connected. I mean, we had to sort of grow up together. We had to figure out life together. And for a long time, we were the only family that the other person had, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Neither of our families was really in communication with us. Um, And so we were kind of alone in the world. Uh, You know, all of our friends even, both hers and mine, for the most part, had kind of fallen off the radar, abandoned us because they came from those very conservative backgrounds. And so to even have contact with us, like tainted them in some way. Mm -hmm. You know, I had this friend who said, um, you know, I just can't be friends with you because other people are going to think like I'm gay if I am friends with you, Mm. which is so silly, but that's how it was. So we just, we didn't have anyone. And I think because of that, um, the relationship lasted a really long time. And we, you know, in the process of sort of finding our way, I think we sort of grew into these different paths, but, um, and probably like if we, we might've needed to separate sooner. I think we did some damage to to one another in Mm -hmm. that growth process in some ways, but also like we really did genuinely love each other. And so, um, yeah, long time, 15 years. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine that was the first time that you really experienced unconditional love. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for both of us having someone who just was constant and who was there and who loved you and who was like, you know, in your corner, no matter what was huge. Yeah. Yeah. You know, working as a therapist, one thing that I've oftentimes noticed as um, I'm helping a client heal from trauma is that um, those attachment injuries Mm. that happen when we experience trauma are, they run deep and they really impact our relationships. And, you know, when I say attachment injury, what I'm talking about is like the person who is supposed to love and care for you 
has harmed you. Mm-hmm. And in your case, again and again and again, from as early as you could remember, the person who was supposed to love and take care of you had harmed you. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just, you know, thinking about you in this 15 year long relationship and wondering if those attachment injuries showed up in any way. <laughs> yes, of course they did. I mean, I think it would have been impossible for them not to have shown up. Um, and I think that's part of why it took us so long to get out of it, right? Um, I think I had a lot of both like sort of avoidant, you know, attachment issues and like these really intense um, anxieties about abandonment. Yeah. And so, you know, I just, it was hard for us to make that separation. Um, And we saw each other through so many things, you know, like, um, all of that growth from the time that I was 19, we supported each other through school, through grad school. I mean, you know, we were the thing that enabled each other to sort of thrive and grow. Um, even if sometimes we held each other back in other ways, you know, but like, I didn't have anyone to like, nobody was helping me with college, right? Like Mm-hmm. I, I was a first-generation college student. So even that in and of itself is a thing, right? You don't really know. But then on top of that, like navigating that whole financial sort of situation, even filling out forms and um, the, all of that stuff. And then there there was no support there. So we were the support when she was in um, school getting her degree as a physician assistant, like I worked and did most of that sort of like supporting role. And then when she got a job um, as a physician assistant, like she played the supporting role so that I could go to college. Right. And so we kind of took turns and we made space for each other in that way. Um, We saw each other through the birth of our son, the premature birth, like, and all of those issues that came with that in the beginning um, through the death of my mom, you know, so lots and lots of things. Um, And, you know, as you stated at the beginning of the last podcast, um, that relationship is still a very important one in my life. Like we still co-parent together. We vacation together. um, We love one another. We're still family. Yeah. Yeah. And you created family. Absolutely. That must have been really powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, and I think that's true for lots of, you know, queer folks right? That they have to create family, that sort of found family, because so often um, their families are not supportive or can't fully support them or don't understand or whatever it might be, right? That they end up creating these alternative families that look like all kinds of things that are not sort of maybe normative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So your life path during that 15 years took you to a lot of different places. Mm -hmm. And then did you settle together here in Bloomington? We did. So we were in Ohio while she finished um, school. And then when she got a job, we moved to Tennessee. That's where she got her first job. So we were in Tennessee together. That's where I did my undergrad degree. Um, And then I started applying to grad school when I finished my undergrad degree. And So that's why we came here to Bloomington for me to do my grad work. Yeah. And had you begun any kind of a healing process at that point? I mean, I think it sounds like you organically 
were in a healing process. You had found a stable attachment. You had created family with somebody. You had found people who accepted you for who you are, right? Mm -hmm. That's all very healing. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious about, you know, I mean, you had such an incredibly difficult experience. I'm wondering, you know, was there any sort of formal like therapy or, or things that you had started to do to heal? Or was that not something you were ready for yet? No, nothing formal. At that point, you know, I think I was still just trying to survive. Um, Coming out of all of that, there was so much, right? So there's like us just trying to figure out how to live right? How do we even just function day to day? How do we support ourselves? Um, That took a lot of energy. And then, you know, I, I think with all of the other stuff, I just kind of turned it off for a while. Like I didn't have the space to think about it, to deal with it. And I think I just felt so relieved to not have to be living that at that point, you know, I wasn't, I was, safe. And I think I just sort of needed to sink into that safeness for a while Yeah, because even if like physically, like I wasn't in danger anymore, right? All of that programming was still with me. I mean, I think when you have that kind of stuff sort of drilled into you or literally beaten into you or whatever it is from such a young age, it just, it sticks right? I mean, I literally worried. I mean, you know, when I was in youth group and church groups, they would always tell these like horrible stories about how, you know, someone had strayed from God and then some horrible thing had happened to them. Like they were in a, you know, almost life-ending car crash or, you know, some kind of like ridiculous tragedy. They tell the story of Job from the Bible. Like, look at all these things that Job endured or like, look what happened to Jonah when he didn't go where he was supposed to. He got thrown off this thing and swallowed by a whale. I mean, you know, it's like, it sounds so ridiculous when I say it like that right now. Like it feels laughable, but I truly worried that something awful would happen to me. Like I worried during thunderstorms, like if I go outside, am I going to get struck by lightning? Like, is God going to strike me dead? I had these like literal, actual fears. Yeah. And so... I was still, I think, living in that sort of fight or flight in many ways, Mm -hmm. Um, just sort of constantly terrified of the world around me or like whatever was still inside of me. Like I still had all of those anxieties and I really just tried to shut that down. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you could articulate that because I actually think that's really, really common that people who experience pretty severe abuse in childhood don't go into therapy right away. Mm-hmm. That it's, you know, something that maybe in middle age, yeah. they begin to approach mm-hmm. um, because I do think that you just get into the survival mode. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, opening that door and taking a look at that stuff is terrifying. Yeah, absolutely terrifying. Um, and... I just, you know, still because we were in such like day-to-day survival mode, like how do we live? How do we eat? You know, I remember like, and I think lots of people have experienced this too probably, but just like looking at the bank account, it's like $5 and you still have however many weeks until you get paid and you're like, hmm, 
that's interesting what's going to happen. Yeah, you know? and no parents to call up and say, can you loan me $100? No, no parents to call up. Nobody. So just like you have $5. So mm-hmm. figure it out, you know? Um, we came here in 2007. I came for grad school. And that was a really interesting time for us because I think, I guess I was probably like 26 or something at that point. You know, a non-traditional student was a little later in my 20s by the time I made it to grad school because of all the like taking turns and back and forth of, of schooling and stuff. And it was this time of, you know, I think self-discovery and growth for me. Um, I found people that I really felt connected to here. And that was kind of like the start of the end of our relationship in many ways. Um, I think we really started to to figure ourselves out, like who we were, what we wanted, um, what the future looked like for us. And, you know, so I think our marriage started to kind of dissolve at that point. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when I went to therapy. Okay. In the middle of that sort of turmoil and dissolution, um, I went to therapy trying to figure out like, what do I do? You know, like this has been my, like it's this like core primary relationship at that point for quite a few years. And what did that life on the other side of that look like for me? Mm-hmm. And we ended up not getting divorced for a lot of years after that. Like we stayed together, right? But that was the beginning of me starting to look at myself, look at my life, think about a future because I never, ever, ever thought about the future. Like I was always just living day to day. The future was like something that didn't exist. Like I never thought I would live to the next year. I never thought I would live to like C40. I always thought that like I would die young. I just like, I never, some people have that like moment of, you know, thinking about themselves sitting on the porch as old people or like when I get married or when I have, I never in my life thought about what my life would look like when I was older, when I got married, if I had children, you know, like none of those things ever factored in. It was always a day to day. Wow. That is fascinating. And such a testament to that idea of being in survival mode. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. That all of your energy was focused on this moment, getting through this moment to the next moment to the next moment. Yeah. Yeah. That took up every single bit of energy that I had. And so I think I finally felt settled enough and safe enough to imagine that there was like any kind of future for me, right? And I also think I had this like really, I mean, it's it's not surprising, but I had a really sort of strange relationship to my body. Mm -hmm. So I was always like really clumsy um, or often felt not in my body um, or just didn't, didn't sort of have a sense of like what my body was or what it could do, you know? Um, And when I got here, just for a variety of reasons, I think I 
started running with a group of people and I started climbing with friends and I started doing yoga. And suddenly like I was very much in my body Mm -hmm. and I felt like what my body could do, right? Like I stopped being clumsy. I started feeling like really solid and really um, connected and sort of like began to feel like I had some sense of ownership of my body and um, like some sort of power in my body that I'd never felt before. Yes. That is so wonderful how you just described that. <laughs> oh, I love talking with you. Um, I Because it's, it's a really cool time in the world of trauma therapy right now. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think we're really figuring out is that when you're working with trauma, you really need a bottom up approach rather than a top down approach. Yep. And in part, that's because 80% of the information that we get about whether we're safe or unsafe comes from our body mm-hmm. to our brain, mm-hmm. right? And only 20% goes from our brain to our body. So it's so important um, when you're working with trauma to really begin with working with the body. And so many of those things that you talked about um, really do help. One thing I'm curious about though, and that I've noticed as a trauma therapist is when people start to do things to really bring themselves into their bodies, they also sometimes get more in touch with their distress, Yes, with the stuff that's in their body mm-hmm. that's left over from their traumatic experiences. And that can be really overwhelming. It can be very overwhelming. Um, and so I think there was a lot of turmoil for me in that time. And I wasn't talking about it outside of therapy, right? So I kind of started to explore some of like my past trauma at that point in therapy, but nowhere else in my life. So I was like carrying all of this stuff every day and nobody knew, right? And not not my partner, not my friends. Like, oh, your partner didn't know that you had experiences of abuse as a child? Um... So kind of like we'd kind of talked about it, but, you know, in the kind of retraction of those stories, I didn't really feel like it was something I could open up again, you know, and it was easier to live in the, these things didn't happen. They're not true because then I didn't have to explore them with anyone. I didn't have to talk about them. And so no, like none of that stuff was making it into my relationship in terms of conversation, it was obviously making it in in other ways Uh as it does. But I just um, was kind of like holding all of the stuff. And I do think that's why I started to find all of these like physical outlets for things because I had to do something with all of that like energy and stuff that was coming up. You know, I think back to when I was at the camp, I did feel strong in some ways. Like we did so much physical labor that like you just, you had to be strong. But I remember still at that point, not having any awareness of like my body or pain or something like that. Like I would literally, you know, like push my body beyond what it could physically handle. Right. So that I was, I did damage to my body, like injury, Mm -hmm. which I still now um, have as a result. I have, really severe back issues. Mm. And I do think that 
in large part, they came from the camp and the kind of work that we did there. Um, but then, you know, when I started to explore my body in these different ways in sports, like I remember being much more sort of aware of, oh, like this thing hurts or when I do that thing, it doesn't feel good. And that was kind of a new experience for me, right? Like that, like acute awareness of my body, of pain, of, you know, both what it could do and like what it had suffered. Mm -hmm. And that was really, it was overwhelming. Yeah. 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 And it sounds like, you know, when you were first in therapy, you were pretty tentative about even, you know, tiptoeing towards that trauma. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, even though I knew the like, that this, there's like privacy things, right? Like you can't, unless you're actively suicidal or you're going to hurt someone else or you're going to, you know, like, even though I knew those things, I absolutely didn't trust anyone. Mm -hmm. I was like, no way. If I tell this story, something terrible is going to happen. You know, someone's going to find out. I'm going to end up somewhere or like somebody's going to come get me or somehow somebody will know. Yeah. And then my life will be undone. And so I was really, really worried about voicing that at all. That makes so much sense to me though, because the first two times in your life that you did tell somebody, your life was undone. Right. I mean, you had so much lived experience to back that fear up. Yeah. Yeah. So it took a while, but, you know, I did start to like unpack that stuff. Um, But it's hard to do it in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Like it's hard to do it in a space where like, it's this one hour a week and you have that, but then everywhere else you have to kind of look like this high functioning, high performing, got your shit together person. Yeah. Um, so. It is hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's very hard. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that keeps people from, you know, really doing that kind of focused healing work is also like, how do you, like, once you've opened Pandora's box, like, how, what are you going to do? Like, how do you close it for all but one hour a week? Mm -hmm. It's, it felt impossible in many ways. And so I noticed all of those, like, previous coping mechanisms, like those impulses came back, right? Like the sort of suicidal ideation or these like feelings of wanting to self-harm or um, just this like overwhelming sense of needing to run away, like wanting to just get into my car and drive until there was like nowhere else to drive and then maybe drive myself off a cliff. Like that's, I mean, I felt like that daily. And, And I was trying to just like keep it under wraps, you know, like just this sort of incredible like amount of, like suffering and pain and despair, but, you know, like it had no outlet really. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Did you stick with the therapy or did, did that just become too much and you needed to walk away for a while? I stuck with it. 
um, sort of on and off for a few years. I did. I stuck with it. But, you know, for me, I think like each time I've entered into like that therapeutic relationship or something like that, it's been sort of like incremental growth and steps, right? So it's like, this was the place that I first tried it out, like telling the story, opening it up, um, seeing what happened or didn't happen, how I felt. And then um, I actually ended up leaving grad school in 2011. So I'd finished my master's. I'd done my, like all my um, doctoral work, coursework, you know, like um, writing my prospectus. Like I'd done all of the stuff and I was pregnant. We were having complications with the pregnancy and I wasn't sure that that work or that department was necessarily like what I wanted Mm -hmm. long-term. And so I took a break um, when Bennett was born and um, I just ended up not going back. And so then I also lost access to, I was going to CAPS at that point. Mm -hmm. So I lost access to therapy in that way. Um, and you were a new mom with a tiny baby who'd had mom. some complications at birth, right? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, he was born at 33 weeks and he was growth restricted. He had a single umbilical artery and like just, we had a lot of complications. I was preeclamptic. Um, yeah. For listeners who've listened to Kate McQueen's um, interview that we did, um, I think that's episode eight. That's the same that interuterine growth restriction. Mm-hmm. That was the same condition that had impacted Keenan, mm-hmm. but it sounds like Bennett has done a little bit better. Yeah. So they were worried about, um, you know, sort of all kinds of different possibilities. And when they first saw that on the um, ultrasound, they did tell us that there were there was potential that what he might have was incompatible with life outside of the womb. And so we kind of, we didn't really know. We did have another ultrasound that they felt fairly certain after that, that it would be okay. Um, But they still weren't sure like if he had a heart issue. I mean, there were just a lot of things, right? And I got put on bed rest pretty early. And so I was on bed rest, pregnant, having complications and all of that trauma was still present. You know, I just remember that I wanted this baby. Like we worked really, really hard to get him um, for a couple of years. I was finally pregnant. And from the very moment I knew that I was pregnant, this like anxiety and fear set in that, that I would somehow like, poison him or taint him Mm. with whatever was wrong with me. Oh, that's so tough. Yeah. Yeah. So all of that stuff was still very much a part of like my, I mean, you know, in the sort of like rational adult side of me, I knew that there was like, I was not possessed by a demon There was nothing, quote, wrong with me. But that feeling was so intense. Absolutely. And it's also so normal. Mm -hmm. It's so normal. 
so many of us are carrying around these parts of ourselves that got told certain things or got treated in certain ways. And those parts, you know, they they can lurk for a long time. And it just sounds like you still had this part of you that had been told many, many times that there was something wrong with you. Even there was a demon inside of you. And so I can really see how that would have come up when you were feeling so vulnerable and so much like you just wanted to protect this little being. Yeah. And I think, you know, I worried about would I be able to carry him to full term? Like, would something be wrong with him? I mean, so many things that like most or many people who are expecting, like they worry about these things to some extent. And then that was just sort of amplified by these thoughts that like there was something wrong with me inside of me that was going to like poison him somehow, or I would pass something on to him. And so when we started having complications for real, and they were like, we don't know if this is compatible with life. And we don't know like if he might have these things. I felt like it was confirmation. Yeah. You know, like, of course I expected this. Um, of course there's something wrong with him because there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and my body is like clearly not able to whatever. Right. So I had these like deep anxieties. And so, you know, there was actually is sort of horrible as it sounds, but like when he was born, it was a traumatic birth in so many ways. And I was very, very sick, but there was a sense of relief on my part that he was just not inside of me anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. That I could see him. He was here. He was so tiny, but at least, you know, like he wasn't in there. Yeah. And being harmed by whatever it was in me that was like not good for him. Mm-hmm. Or that's how I felt at least, you know. So it was hard to see like this teeny tiny little thing struggling. You know, we were, I think, in the hospital for about a month with him struggling. And every day in the beginning was like touch and go, you know. Yeah. We didn't really know what was happening, how he would fare that day if he would, how many apneic episodes he would have, if he would like gain weight or lose weight, could he keep his body temperature up? Like all of those things. And I was still relieved. And then that made me feel terrible too, Mm. right? Like you're relieved that he's here suffering in this way. (laughs) So it was just like round and round and round, like never ending cycle of guilt and shame. Yeah. And that shame is so powerful. Yeah. I think that's, you know, that tends to be the end result of a a lot of the feelings and beliefs that we carry from trauma as they end in shame, right? Yeah. There's something wrong with me. I feel ashamed. Um, And it just sounds like you are just still carrying so much of that shame. Yeah. And I think I hadn't really begun the work of unraveling those narratives, like the work that I'd done in therapy up until that point was basically like stepping into just what happens if I say these things, what happens if I tell the story, but it wasn't like I'd really begun to do the work of sort of untangling those things in myself. Yeah. You know, I think that's just such a long process. Oh, so long. Yeah. And still ongoing, right? Yeah. 
But I think, you know, the his birth sort of prompted me to start to do more of that work mm-hmm. because I was so, so adamantly committed to not reproducing those cycles of harm or of of trauma for him. And I knew that if I didn't deal with my own crap, it would make its way into my parenting, into, you know, our home and into all of these things. And I just really didn't want that. Um, And so I started to explore the possibility of finding some kind of church, which is funny because like organized religion and religion had done so much harm, but I figured in some ways I had to go back to the source to figure out like, you know, and I thought if I can just find a church that is like open and welcoming and affirming and that has like a different, you know, maybe I can start to, to re, to rewrite those narratives. Yeah. Um, and I also didn't know like what I would tell him if he had questions about, and we're living in a state like Indiana or like when we were living in Tennessee and both of our families are very religious, like how was I going to deal with and sort of combat that narrative if I didn't have something else to offer him, right? If I just was like, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, kid, yeah. you know, and maybe that's fine. But for me, it felt important for me to have some kind of answer or alternate response or something. Yeah. And I think what you're describing is something that a lot of us do kind of unconsciously. You know, we have a a bad experience and we want to have a reparative experience. Mm -hmm. We really want to right that wrong. We want to, you know, do something where, you know, we're put in a similar situation and yet the the bad thing doesn't happen. Our needs do get met. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you just had a really natural instinct to try to have a reparative experience in this church. Yeah. So I entered skeptically, right? Completely critically, just like, this is going to be, you know, whatever. And I guess I was probably, you know, I hadn't really stepped foot into a church in over a decade at that point. Um, So it was really uncomfortable. But, you know, I found this place And it was full of these like really lovely humans who were very warm and welcoming and accepting. And I wasn't working at the time. So because Bennett had all of these complications, the doctors advised us not to put him into daycare because he was immunocompromised at that point. And I had the privilege and the the sort of ability to not work. Kim was working and, I just was at home with him. So I would go to these like Tuesday morning, like little sessions with these elderly folks in the church. And I was really worried about stepping into that space because, and this is my own, probably these were my own ageist assumptions too, that like people of a certain age wouldn't be accepting of queer people, Mm. right? That had been my experience. Right, yeah. And so I I entered, but they were just like these 
warm, loving people. And basically that thing was like every Tuesday they would meet in the morning and they would have conversations about like different religions or different aspects of religion or different aspects of like the Bible or like, and this was not a church that took the Bible like literally. It was more like, hey, we take it seriously as like a sort of metaphor or, you know, lesson for what we should or shouldn't do. Um, And so it really began to help me unpack some of like those really harmful stories that I have been told about like how this is real. And there's like this really angry and vengeful God who will strike you down dead if you don't do these things, right? So I started to like untangle all of that stuff. And that was really powerful. Mm -hmm. I think what I found at the end of that untangling was that I didn't actually need any of that. You know, I wasn't, I didn't need a belief in a higher power or in God necessarily, or at least not like in a certain version of God, right? I just, I thought maybe I would untangle one narrative and replace it with another. But what I found at the end of that was that I just, I could put it all down. Yeah. You could release it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of, that was a huge part, I think, in my healing And then somewhere in there, my mom, um, like 2013, she got diagnosed with cancer. Mm -hmm. And she was diagnosed in May, and she passed away in October of that same year. So that moved pretty quickly. It moved really quickly. And my son was like two years old at that point. And she, my parents, actually came to live with me. Oh, wow. So we had probably in that time from like 1999 or 2000 until like 2007, we had maybe been in the same space three or four times in all of those years. Um, My relationship with them was still really strained and they didn't live stateside. They lived in Korea. So I just didn't see them very often. Um, But when she was diagnosed, um, we made the decision for her to come here so that she could be, you know, with us, like my brother and my sister, whatever. And I'm the only person who really had like a a place that was big enough or stable enough to house everybody. So they came to live with us. That's really intense. Mm -hmm. I mean, any family going through a terminal diagnosis, like that's really intense. But given your history, wow. Yeah. So what was that like to have your parents in your space suddenly 24-7? It was really, really hard. Um, Obviously, like, I didn't want my mom to be in pain. Um, She was incredibly sick by the time she got here. They had done radiation to reduce the size of the tumors on the brain so that she could travel. But she was very sick. Um, There was nothing really that could be done. It was, we knew it was terminal. And she'd opted out of any kind of like further treatment because she didn't want the time that she had to be 
you know, sort of, she didn't want to be sick the whole time or whatever. And it was like, they didn't even meet my partner until we'd been together for 10 years. And then, you know, so having them in my house with all of our history, this uncomfortable situation with my partner and my son, and then my brother and his kids and my sister, they were all sort of moving in and out. There was just like constant chaos. And I felt, as I always did, the responsibility of like keeping everyone sort of okay, Mm -hmm. like fed, happy, tended to, like all of these things. And so I was experiencing like incredible amounts of like distress, but I just, I didn't, there was no space for it. Um, So I think I kind of did the thing that I often did when I was with my family or like my parents. And I just sort of like vacate my body. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was just thinking the word, well, uh, dissociation. I was thinking, well, you must have dissociated. Like how do you, you know, like how do you really embody all of that? That's, that is tough. It is tough. And it's, it's tough to feel that way. And like, I have this baby, you know, that I love like intensely and he keeps pulling me back into the moment and back into the present. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you, I just, you have to, Yes, That's, you know, a two year old, yes. you have to be constantly present. They're always tugging at you for something. And so it's like this, this back and forth of like trying to be present with him, trying to manage all of the stuff, knowing my mom's, my mom is dying, like having, you know, just like all of these things. And it just was like this crushing sense of obligation and all of this trauma was still there between us. And I remember my dad saying, um, your mom wants to have a conversation with you because she feels like guilty, like she wasn't a good mother. And he said, you just need to tell her that she did everything, like that she was a great mother. Oh my gosh. So much of an echo from the past, right? All those times you were told, you know, you just need to tell a completely different version of the truth than what is your truth. Right. Like, don't make her feel bad when she's dying. And of course there's like, like, yeah, you don't want to make someone feel bad when they're dying. You know, like what? I mean, that feels awful anyway. But it was just this like, and I, I kept holding on to, okay, this is my house. This is my space but it didn't feel like it anymore. It felt like I was 15 again. And it was like, my parents were praying at every meal. And like, it was just like the house felt the way I had always felt, right? Except for now I was grown up. I was grown up and I had, but it doesn't matter, right? Like it just- No, it doesn't. I was like right back in it. So yeah, they ended up actually leaving before my mom passed away. I think there was a lot of pressure. She was uncomfortable in lots of ways. We didn't have access to things that like, just sort of like creature comforts Mm -hmm. that because it's Bloomington and there's not a huge community of like Korean people. And so like even trying to get like ingredients to make certain kinds of foods, right? That was hard. 
And I would like struggle to like find the right things or make the right things to feed her that she couldn't keep down anyway. It was just like, it's like awful, awful five months. And so they, they left and went back to Korea. Um, and then she like passed away within a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. I'm so sad for you too that um, your dad did that with that conversation because that could have actually been a really important conversation for you and your mom to have. Yeah. You know, it sounds like she was trying to take some accountability and that, that could have been really healing and how unfortunate that your dad stepped in and created that dynamic yet again. Yeah. And I, I mean, I kept a blog that was public during um, that period of time. It's interesting when I go back and read that sometimes um, to see like where I was in this whole process. Um, And I do think that there's potential that it could have been sort of healing, but also, I don't know. It's just such a hard thing, you know, when I think that there is like loss no matter what, right? And that in some ways, like that admission or that responsibility taking on her part, it came so, so late. Yes. Too late. Yes. And it's, it is, I think, affirming to have someone say, yes, there was something wrong and I, I didn't do what I could have done, but also, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. We've had other guests touch on that too. You know, having somebody apologize to them after doing them the type of damage that is devastating and so hard to recover from, Mm -hmm. that can create some really complicated feelings. Yeah. 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 How was it for you when she actually passed? I think it's a, it's a mile marker for me. Like I have these things that mark like these points of my life that become healing points in some way. And again, it's like, it's weird to think about my mom's death as like a point of healing. Cause I, I'm not saying that like, I, w- I was glad she died, but in many ways, even though it was incredibly devastating in so many ways, I felt free from certain obligations. And in, I think her death marked the start of real possibility for me of healing. Um, I actually started writing mm-hmm. like my story, like writing a book at that point, because I felt like I could somehow like tell the story now. Um, and I couldn't, I wasn't ready yet. So I stopped at some point about 40,000 words in, but I did, there was a shift in me. Yes. And, you know, I think that I felt so much obligation to her to like be this 
dutiful daughter mm-hmm. in many ways. And I think part of that is cultural. Part of it was like the sort of religious aspects, but it was a deeply, deeply ingrained sense of obligation to me, to her, um, that I, and this is, this is like, this is interesting because even thinking about this podcast, those things have come up about my mother mm-hmm. in particular, like that whole idea of saving face and this whole sort of, and this is very much kind of ingrained in like Asian culture or tradition, like you don't dishonor your family, yes. right? Like you fall on your sword before you do that. It's come up even now, like in this podcast, she's dead. And I have still had these moments where I'm like, am I dishonoring my mother by telling the story, mm-hmm. right? There are these like flickers of, of this thing that keeps coming back. And I'm like, okay, no, this is my story. I get to tell it. It's not about, you know, but it's funny that it still surfaces. Yes. So it was really difficult to take ownership of your story when she was alive. Yes. Because I that. absolutely felt like I had a responsibility to her to save face for the whole family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when she died, it did give you some freedom. Mm-hmm. It did. Yeah. And I do think, you know, even though you didn't finish your book, that, you know, really diving into the narrative mm-hmm. of your story and really finding your own voice mm-hmm. to tell it in is so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And the other interesting thing is that my mom died and Camp Tracy closed in the same month. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So the camp closed officially in October of 2013, the same month that my mom died. I remember a friend reaching out to say, hey, did you hear that Camp Tracy closed? I hadn't because I'd been wrapped up in like the death and the illness of my mom. And it was such a strange feeling that so many of these pieces that had like dominated or dictated so much of my life and had caused, you know, had done so much damage and had also like kept me afraid, right? Like, what if I say this and this thing happens? Well, it was just gone. Yeah. Right. And I just felt this like thing, this little tiny kernel of a thing in me that really felt free, like for the first time in my life. And so, yeah, I think, you know, that her death, the closing of the camp, those were two really, really important moments for me in my healing. Yes. That sounds terrible. I just said that and it sounds terrible. Well, <laughs> no, I, I completely oh understand though. I completely understand because there was always going to be a part of you that felt like you needed to protect your mom when she was alive. Yeah. And so it, it would, it would be really difficult to mm-hmm. stand in your own story. Yeah. 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 And that little kernel, it sounds like that was something that you were able to grab onto. Yep. Yeah. Not that long after my partner and I officially kind of, we split, we got divorced. Um, and I really started to feel like, because even that marriage, oddly enough, you know, it took my parents so long to come around to the idea that like I was gay, 
had this family. But then my mom was like, oh, this is a good person. This family unit thing is working. And I think there was part of me that continued to stay married to prove something to her. Mm -hmm. Like, see, it's not what you think. Yeah. Um, And so again, like when she died, I felt released from so many different obligations. And I felt like I could just think about what was, what I needed and start to really explore those things. Yeah. And where did that lead you? Um, it was still rocky for a while, you know? Um, the divorce was painful for both of us, even though we both knew it was the right thing. Um, figuring out how to, like, co-parent a child across households, it's hard. Yeah. Nobody really goes into a relationship like that thinking that you're going to share your kid or not be, you know, you don't, I, I didn't want to be apart from him 50% of the time. Yeah. I think letting go of the letting go of the experience of family mm-hmm. is so hard. Like even if you're totally clear that you know it is not working with this individual, it's mm-hmm. like letting go of living within family yeah. is really a hard thing. So hard. And so that that was difficult to work through. And then sort of at the same time, the church that I've been going to. I'd gotten very enmeshed in many ways. So I was actually working there part-time, which caused a lot of discomfort in me in many ways, but also the work that I was doing wasn't like inherently sort of religious. It was more community focused, um, like creating community, um, being involved in various things in our community, like outside of the church itself. And, um, this like really unfortunate thing happened that the the sort of senior pastor there that I'd become really, really close to um, ended up being like kind of more of the same. Oh, yeah, right? I know it was so, so, so disappointing because... It was a very, very lovely place to be with all of these really, really lovely people. And it kind of actually destroyed me. Mm. Um, it was really, really not good when this whole thing unfolded. And I ended up kind of having to be like the whistleblower in many ways, which felt terrible because then, you know, there, there's like so much fallout from that. Well, and also echoes from the past, Echoes right? from the past. <sighs> and I was like, here we are again. I thought this was right. I'm typically like have a good sense of people, like highly intuitive at this point. Like just when you've seen so much trauma, like I think you can become really in tune with like, oh, I recognize this pattern. I he was such a good like faker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like this is like master level stuff. Anyway, so that whole thing ended up happening. He had been one of the very, very, very few people in my life at that point that I had disclosed this abuse to. Oh. And that ha- that he really like sort of knew my story. And it got used in a very, um, like just really 
harmful and problematic way. I am so sorry. And I just fell apart. Mm-hmm. So I was recently divorced. This thing unraveled, like reactivated all of this trauma in so many ways. And I could barely get out of bed. And at that point I had like a four-year-old. Um, I needed to get a full-time job because I was divorced at this point. And I was barely like able to like live, you know, I just every day felt like I can't do this anymore. I can't, can't like exist in a world where people can do this kind of harm. Yeah. Over and over. And it felt even more harmful in some ways because like he knew my story. Yeah. And he used that to do harm. Mm. And and then it also resulted in me being cut off from this community because I didn't feel like, like things were sort of kept under wraps to some yeah. extent. And so I kind of just shut myself off, like from everybody and everything. I was just out. I was mm-hmm. like, I can't, like, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the only thing that really kept me alive, but like really and truly was my son. Mm. You know, I just thought you cannot take some action that would do irreparable harm to your kid. Yeah. And so that's what I kept at the forefront of my like everyday existence. Like you have to get up and you have to keep living and you have to keep doing these things because of this child. Yeah. And so I did. Um, And I, I started teaching you know, I was kind of just going through the motions. But um, it's a funny thing about kids, though. They kind of like, they just ask in all of these ways every day, whether it's through like these sort of genuine moments of connection or like problematic choices or behaviors. Like they are always saying like, look at me, see me, I need you here with me. Yeah. And when you're in a classroom with kids all day long, every day, um, you kind of have to just like, you have to, you have to plug in, you have to be present, you have to be alive. Because if you're not, they will absolutely know it. Yeah. And they'll eat you alive, you know? Yeah. And so I think teaching was incredibly exhausting and draining in so many ways, but also like it made me have to show up every day. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing, like all of those connections, right? Like these kids who would come to my classroom who wanted me to like weigh in on their prom dress or who would come to my classroom and ask me about like their college applications or, you know, it's like those connections, like you just, you know, every connection point was like, and there's this person and there's this kid and there's this kid. And I remember at one point, like when I was just completely and utterly like in this state of despair, like I really just don't, I didn't, no part of me wanted to be living anymore, really. Mm-hmm. And I remember like making this circle. I was just sort of doodling one day and it was like, if I make this choice, 
these people will be impacted, right? Like I put these people in the center, like my, my kids or my, you know, like my partner, my, at that point, or, you know, my ex or my brother or my sister, whoever. Right. And then Mm -hmm. I was like, okay. And then at this level, like these people will be impacted. And I just made this like sort of bullseye. Right. And I kept writing people's names, like in the circle of these people are going to be impacted. These people are going to be impacted. And in some ways, it's like that sense of obligation again to other people. It wasn't about myself. It wasn't like, hey, like for yourself, like here are some things or here are some reasons why. But it was like the only way that I could get out of that space was to think about my obligation to other people Mm -hmm. and the impact on other people. And I think the thing that's like at the center of me always is to never ever want to do harm or cause trauma to other people. Mm -hmm. In any way, because I've experienced so much of that. Yes. Yes. And so your your compassion was such a guiding force in that time. It's the only light. The only thing. This like sense of not wanting to do harm. And and so that um I think that's the thing that like helped me make it through that time. Yeah. And it's the thing that has been like the sort of driving force of like everything that I I do. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes I still feel, I mean, like healing isn't this like long, long, long ongoing process. And there are still days where I think, um, I don't know if for myself that there are some things that I can like find or recover. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that, that that's kind of maybe that's like a bleak sort of way to, to live or think. You know, I'm, I'm working all the time every day on like those things. But if I can ensure that like someone else doesn't have to feel that suffering or like I can reduce harm somewhere. Then for me, that's, that's like, that feels like a lot. Yes. And maybe enough even. Yes. Yeah. I think that when we're recovering from trauma, you know, we all have to find those things that really give our lives meaning. Like that truly resonate with our soul. And then we just have to hold on like hell. Just hold on so hard to those things. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I'm here like every day doing the work. Mm -hmm. It's exhausting, right? And I'm not who I was at 26 or 35. I'm 41. I suspect that if I live to be 50, because I still have that thing sometimes where I'm like, will I even live to 50? I don't know. Um, I won't be the same then, you know? And I just, I do think about the future more, especially I think because I have a kid or kids. I have, you know, my bonus kids, my bio kid, however we talk about them. And so I think about a future like with them in it, mm-hmm. right? And so I do think about the future in that way. Like, what does that look like for them? What do we offer them? What do we provide for them? What have we left for them? Um, And I like to imagine whatever futures for them too. Like 
finding themselves. I mean, you know, Sophie, our oldest is at college right now and like loving her, her experience there. And it's just like really, really so fun to watch. And many days I'm still living day to day, Mm -hmm. right? Like I'm making it through this one busy day or I'm making it through this next busy day and I'm gonna, um, I have two years left on the school board, right? What can I do in that time to um, provide access or equity? Or it's like, you know, it's like the work is every day. Mm-hmm. And then when you look back, I can see the growth and the change. And so the way that it feels in the moment isn't always the way that it feels like looking back in retrospect. Like I know when those cycles and those feelings and those things come up in me, I feel differently now, right? I know that like, even if I feel this really shitty way today, that I've been here like 5,000 times before and I've like made it through every single time. Absolutely. And so now I know like, okay, I feel like this today, but I don't have to feel like this tomorrow and I probably won't feel like this six months from now. And I have more perspective than I did at like 25 or 24 or 19 when I thought like, I feel this way today and it might be the day that I die, right? Like it's a very different, way, but it doesn't mean that the cycle or those feelings don't come back around. It just means that like, I understand now Yeah, at 41 that it can be different than I did at 19. And I do think that the benefit of taking the risk to open the door and dive in Mm -hmm. and really get familiar with your trauma is that it becomes something that's very familiar. And then when it pops up, you're like, Oh, you again. Mm-hmm. I know you. <laughs> yes, indeed. And it's not as, I mean, it's never pleasant, but it's not as terrifying as when right. it's this unknown thing that is lurking and ready to nab you. Yep. That's right. April, I am so moved by your story. And I'm also so moved by how you tell it in a way that is just so grounded and real, you know, and there's not a a glossing over. Um, You're really real about the fact that this is something that you still live with, you know, and this is something that um, you probably always will live with. I think it's important. I do. I think it's so important for people to know because I do think sometimes And this is something I've wrestled with, right? Like before I tell the story or when people don't know these things about me, I mean, I don't, I I guess we probably don't ever really know how people perceive us, right? That's, I don't know. But I do think that often just feedback from people is that they perceive me in a particular way. You know, a person who um, has it, is put together or has like their, shit in order, or they know what they're doing, or they seem sort of self-assured or confident or whatever it might be, right? And I I think that it's important for people to know that that can be true. And there can be all of these other things, right? Um, because I think we all feel alone in our experiences often. Yes. And for people to know that I carry or I have or I've experienced all of these things, I think is really, really important. Like, I just don't want people to feel like 
they're alone in those things or they're alone in those moments or alone in those experiences that like, I'm not messy. I'm so messy. I have so many messy parts and things that like I am constantly wrangling every day. And sometimes I do better than others. You know, I just, I know that there have been moments where people are like, wow, you shared that thing on social media. Like that was kind of brave. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, maybe, but I just think if we aren't real with one another, like we all stay hurting. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, that's a big piece of why I wanted to do this show to begin with is that I, you know, so many times have sat with somebody in my therapy room and heard how alone they feel in their experience. But then I'm thinking, gosh, I've talked with dozens of people who have described such similar feelings, Mm -hmm. such similar reactions to being harmed in this way. And it, it just feels so important to let people know that they are not alone. Yeah. So thanks for this podcast and for the work. Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. Thank you so much for being here. And you truly are a badass. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me. Yeah. would not be possible without the support of several people who have donated their skills to the show. First of all, Kevin Evans, who has volunteered his time recording and editing the show. Thank you, Kevin. Another big thanks to Austin Lucas and his record label Last Chance Records for allowing us the use of his original music. In addition, we would like to thank Kate Long and her band Rodeola for the use of their original music. Finally, a big thanks to the Badass Team's life partners, Alex and Amy, who have made do without us on weekends and evenings as we have been holed up working on the show. <laughs>